These are the daily lectionary comments for the Saturday after Ash Wednesday. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, which recounts the source of all our heartaches and troubles in, in life, the fall of human beings into rebellion and sin. And then we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where we see a couple of, of pericopes relating Jesus' relationship to sin and sinners. Whenever you hear somebody say something like, when I see the evil that happens in the world today, the bad things that happen, the wars, the pestilences, the children who die, and so forth, and they say, I just can't see how there could be a good God creating and maintaining all things and allowing this to happen. Therefore, I don't believe in God. When you hear something like that, you realize that this person is taking Genesis 1 and 2 to be the whole story. But Genesis 1 and 2 is not the whole story. Genesis 1 and 2 explains the ultimate origins of all things. But it does not, and it does not try to explain the condition of things now. In order to understand the condition of the world now and the human condition, you cannot just ignore what Genesis chapter 3 is telling us. Genesis chapter 3, oftentimes described as the fall, the fall of human beings. The fall is a problematic way of putting it. It's not wrong, but the fall makes it sound like a, an accident and a trip, whereas really what Genesis chapter 3 is, is telling us here is more, is describing, it's more of, a, of a, re, a rebellion, an active rebellion. It starts small, but it has grown. Now, Genesis chapter 3, the incident with the serpent and Adam and Eve and God is paradigmatic. It doesn't just tell us what happened then. Once upon a time, these two people did this and God got very angry. And therefore, all these things have been happening since. It is also giving us a paradigm of the basic problem between human beings and God. The basic state of things. And the state of things, as I've just mentioned, is a state of rebellion. Human beings are in rebellion against God. The text is clearly telling us that we were put up to this. The serpent tempted uh, Eve, and then Eve gave Adam, and so on. Uh, but Adam and Eve, whether tempted by uh, the serpent or not, still actively engaged in rebellion. The first question that might come to your mind is, where on earth did this serpent come from in any good and perfect world? We're going to set that aside. I don't have an answer for that, and the scripture doesn't attempt to provide an answer for that. We are simply going to let that stand. Here in the midst of this perfect world is Satan doing his work through an animal, through a creature that God made, a snake. Now... <clears throat> The paradigm here is what has gone wrong between human beings and God and what remains wrong. And that's important because what happened with Adam and Eve happens with all human beings since that time. And it begins with an undermining of God's word. Did God actually say thus and so? This is not just a nitpicking about what does the text mean. It's a question of God's authority and sovereignty. Now, Eve knew the right answer. He did indeed say, but she chose to go with what 
uh, the, the serpent was saying, because the fruit was desirable. It's not just that it, it was good, looked like it tasted good, but it was desirable to make one wise, and it was beautiful to look at, and it tasted good, and all of this. It, for whatever reasons, the question was, okay, Eve desired the fruit. God had forbidden it. The devil is suggesting that perhaps you should have it anyway. In fact, he goes further than that. He insinuates that God doesn't want you to have that fruit because God has some nefarious purpose in mind. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you will be like him, knowing, uh, 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 having knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want you to have the same knowledge and control of things that he has. <clears throat> and therefore, he's keeping you from this fruit. So we have much more than just, hey, wouldn't this be nice to eat? This, it, what, what Satan is doing is inciting a rebellion be, against God in Eve. And Eve succumbs. She doesn't succumb because she's stupid. She succumbs because she wants what the devil is offering and she suspects that he might be right. And when it says that she gave to, to Adam to eat and he ate, we don't want to let Adam off the hook here as though he had no idea what was going on and that he, in fact, did not see any of these um, uh, reasons to rebel against God that Eve saw. We're going to read this as Adam has joined Eve in this rebellion. So the basic problem is human beings are in rebellion against God. Note that the text goes on to say that God comes walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the evening. <clears throat> Ultimately, God is going to withdraw from human beings as part of the consequences of their rebellion. He won't withdraw completely, but he will withdraw. But note that before God withdraws, human beings are already withdrawing. They're hiding from him because they're ashamed. Now, uh, the Lord had said, and the, uh, the, the devil had said, your eyes will be open if you eat this. And there's irony there. Their eyes were open, but what they saw was not good. And in fact, the fact that their eyes were open is what told on them. How did you know that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that you shouldn't have eaten of? All right now, there's so much more that could be said about this, many, many volumes. But what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to quickly look at the curses, the curse against Satan, the curse against Adam, the curse against Eve. I'm going to look at them in reverse order. And I'm going to see that they're not only curses, but there's good news built into each, each of these. First, God curses Adam in this way. You are going to work to grow your food and survive in this world, but the ground now is going to be cursed. So that means that the act of survival in this world is now going to be brutally hard and filled with futility. You will work, and it will be painful, and the ground will now produce thorns and thistles rather than just food for you. Not only that, but it will wear you out. I took you from dust. You will return to the dust. So there we have a proclamation of the, of the uh, mortality of human beings from this time forward. The curse that applies to Adam applies to Eve as well is to all humanity, but it's directed at Adam because he's the one that's most directly going to be fighting against the elements in order to make food. The good news here, however, is that he will eat. Humanity will eat of the fruit of the field. Okay, so he's not just going to starve to death because the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed, so life is going to be very hard, but you will eat of the fruit of the field. So there is good news. You are going to survive. Now, regarding what, what God said to Eve, 
here he 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 curses basically the domestic realm first off Eve is going to have pain in childbirth. What should have been a joyful thing in being fruitful and multiply is now going to bring her pain. Not just pain in the actual childbirth, but in the pain of having children. Children, it has been said, are, are you know, when you have children, you have, you've given hostages to the world. They're, they're creatures that cause a great deal of pain uh, to, uh, to mothers. But just as the curse on Adam is not only Adam, the curse on Eve is not only for Eve. The pain of children will redound both to mothers and fathers. So there's going to be pain associated with procreation. The second thing is the relationship between Adam and Eve themselves. It says, your desire shall be your husband, but he shall rule over you. The idea of the desire of, the, of Eve, the sense of the Hebrew behind this is that Eve will desire to dominate her husband. She will want to rule and control him. But in fact, she won't be able to. Okay, so there's now uh, the part of the curse is that there's going to be strife and enmity between husband and wife. There will not be peace between these two as it was meant to be. The two shall be one, uh, what Moses had, had told us. But now, uh, yeah, the two are one, but they're also fighting with one another and fighting against one another. The good news here, and there is good news, is that there will be children. Life will go on. In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Well, obviously, he did not mean Adam and Eve would drop over dead, and that would be the end of the human race. He meant something else by that, and he also means here that children will go on. Now, so that is vitally important. The human race will continue, even though it will continue with much strife and much pain. Third, the curse that, that, that God issued toward Satan is also very interesting. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. Okay, so enmity. <clears throat> what Satan has done is caused human beings to rebel against God. But what he has not done is caused human beings to go wholeheartedly with Satan. It is not as though we are like Satan's evil demons. We are not completely in Satan's camp, but we are no longer in God's camp either. There will be enmity between us and God's enmity. Uh, God's enemy. And so uh, that's, that's, and that means that there is going to be constant friction between us and Satan. Satan will continue to afflict God's people. But the fact of the matter is, we have not been won over completely to him. So that's good news number one. There will be enmity. We are not actually friends with Satan, even if we are not completely friends with God either. The second thing is the pronouncement that in the end, the offspring of Eve will ultimately destroy, will, will give a fatal blow to the offspring, to Satan. So Satan's head, okay, the, the kingdom of Satan will ultimately be destroyed. He will bruise or crush your head. The offspring of Eve will bruise or crush Satan's head, his, his, his kingdom, his authority. Whereas Satan will bruise or crush the offspring of Eve's heal. In other words, he'll cause great injury and misery, including injury and misery to Eve's most famous and important offspring, Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus of Nazareth, through his death and resurrection, will crush and destroy the works of Satan. So, uh, so this is good news. This good news is ultimate victory will belong to God and will, and will redound to the, the blessings and benefits of Adam and Eve who have just rebelled against God. 
So what we have here is an important aspect of, of human existence. And that is, it's not just that God has created everything good, but that it is a good thing that is now in corruption, but also is open to redemption and that God is actively involved in redeeming us. There is hope for humanity, though we don't deserve it. We've screwed everything up, but God is setting in motion the gears of our ultimate redemption. And that's what the rest of scripture is about, how God has worked through history and through the offspring of Eve and through all the miseries of this world to work redemption for these people who have rebelled against him so that we may one day return to, as it were, the Garden of Eden and perfect, uh, a perfect fellowship with our God. Right, Mark chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. I must needs be brief. This section continues the theme in Mark of Jesus' authority. And here, the, we've already seen that Jesus has authority over illness and, and uh, authority over unclean spirits. But now we see Jesus' authority over one of the most vexing of human problems. And that is our, state, our status of being in rebellion against God under the wrath of God. <clears throat> and that is his relationship to sin and sinners. This is brought to us uh, by means of a paralytic who is brought to Jesus. And Jesus says to, to the paralytic, not rise up and take up your mat, but your sins are forgiven. Okay, He was going to say rise and take up your mat, but first he says, your sins are forgiven. And this draws a, a, um, uh, a rebuke, essentially, in the thinking of the Pharisees who are listening to this saying, and, and their thoughts are, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that is actually a true statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus, perceiving what they're thinking and recognizing that they're thinking that what he's saying is blasphemy, that I, Jesus, am forgiving your sins, says, well, which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven, talk is cheap, anybody can say that, or to say rise, take up your mat, and go home. Anybody can say that too, but whether that was true or not will be shortly seen by whether the man gets up. So then Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and go home. And he rose. This also tells us the ultimate purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is not simply to demonstrate that Jesus has power over things and can do amazing things that the rest of us can't do. The miracles are designed to show the underlying spiritual authority and the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of our Lord Jesus and his ministry. And here, he uses the fact that he can heal this paralytic after telling him his sins are forgiven to demonstrate that his sins are forgiven. And that's why Jesus says, by doing this, I could say your sins are forgiven, but who would ever know that it's true? But now I say your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your mat, and walk. The fact that he walks demonstrates that when I said to him, your sins are forgiven, in fact, his sins were forgiven. Implicitly also, we answer the question, if who can forgive sins but God alone? If only God can forgive sins, then Jesus' power to forgive sins puts him in very close proximity to God, if not making him God himself. So in other words, the words of Jesus are the words of God and his actions are the actions of God. So we establish then that Jesus' relationship to sin and sinners is that he has authority over sin and can forgive. Then this is demonstrated further, not by another miracle, 
but by how Jesus actually conducts his ministry. He calls Levi a tax collector. Tax collectors in those days were considered uh, traitorous Jews. They were operating basically on behalf of the Roman Empire, and they were seen by faithful Jews very much like you might see prostitutes or drug, drug dealers or so on, people who live outside the law and are people who are, by their very lifestyle, are condemned by God, who don't even try to be decent people. That's what Levi would have been seen as. By the way, Levi's other name is Matthew. Matthew is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus calls Matthew slash Levi to come and follow him, to be his disciple. This is a tax collector. And then the very next scene is Jesus is at Levi's house, dining with other tax collectors and, quote, sinners. Sinners, by that it means people who are basically outside the pale of decent society is what it means. And that's where he gets criticized again. How are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? And he says, he gives us famous uh, words, you know, that the, the, um, that the well have no need of a physician, but the sick have come to save sinners. So we see that Jesus demonstrates his authority over sin and his ability and willingness to forgive, his authority to do that, but also it is lived out in his life. He actually forgives sins and restores sinners back to fellowship with God. That's when he's eating with them, the whole idea there is, is not just that we're going to fill our stomachs and we all have to eat somewhere. Eating with somebody is a sign of fellowship with them. And Jesus is showing his fellowship with these people who do not have fellowship with these in society because they were sinners. Well, it's not that Jesus is saying, actually, all this sinning is okay by me. I don't mind. He's not saying that. He's saying, I am able to forgive sins. These people will leave their sinful world and will no longer be uh, bound to it but they will also no longer be enslaved by the fact that they have been sinners. I will forgive and release them from that. That will allow them to have fellowship with me in the kingdom of God. And that is a paradigm for the whole mission and ministry of the, of the Christian church, that we have fellowship with God because of Jesus' authority to forgive our sins and release us from our path. All right, I've gone long today. Couldn't help it on these texts. Until tomorrow, God bless.